If a live dinosaur dragged its slow length into the laboratory, would we not look back as we fled? Speaking not only for myself, but for all other old western men whom you may meet, I would say, use your specimens while you can. There are not going to be many more dinosaurs. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 55, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, After Hours with Dr. Jason M. Baxter. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favourite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. My name is David, and this season we worked our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. We then had Ecumenism Month and Apologetics Month, and then we read our Narnian Chronicle for the season, The Horse and His Boy. But for the rest of July, we're going to be interviewing a number of authors about books which they've written, and today I'm speaking to Dr. Jason Baxter. Dr. Baxter has taught at Wyoming Catholic College for about 11 years. His primary research interests include medieval and Renaissance ideas of beauty, the long-lived legacy of Platonic thought, and the poetry of Dante. He's also interested in medieval mysticism, humanism, the relationship between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and increasingly, the relationship between science and the arts. He's written five books, including An Introduction to Christian Mysticism, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, Falling Inward, Humanities in the Age of Technology, and the book which we'll be discussing today, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. Dr. Baxter, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks. So happy to be here. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's finally turned spring in Wyoming. So it's <laughs> one of those sorts of days that if you're unhappy, there's something seriously wrong with you. <laughs> we have something very similar here in Wisconsin at the moment. Everybody's in such a good mood because they're, they're feeling the temperatures start to creep back up again. I know. Spring, uh, Chaucer understood it and the, and the medievals, but spring is a special thing. <laughs> well, it's fantastic to have you on the show. And it's great to be back talking about the medieval world again. Uh, last season, my co-host, uh, Matt, he interviewed Chris Armstrong because I read Chris's book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. Loved it so much. And so I sent it to Matt as a Christmas present and a note telling him that I'd already booked an interview with Dr. Armstrong to talk about it. Uh, for listeners uh, who want to listen to that, that's season four, episode 37. Now, for our interview, I am drinking a nice cup of tea. So with that, cheers. I already finished my Americano. <laughs> so American. <laughs> so to kick things off, can you please tell us a little bit about your background, your history with Lewis, and explain how you came to write a book about him? Yes. I have loved C.S. Lewis since I was a teenager, probably like a lot of your listeners. I uh, was a morally serious kid, even as a teenager. And so I was reading his sermons and his nonfiction I think for you know for so many people he's for, for so many Christians he's the entree into any sort of intellectual depth and any sort of intellectual encounter with the the riches of the uh, of the Christian tradition. Um, but then I you know went off I uh, studied classics, uh, Latin and Greek as an undergraduate at University of Dallas. Then decided to go into grad school where I did Italian studies, and all my work there was the attempt to try to connect. Plato and Platonism with the Italian writing medieval poet Dante. Dante didn't have access, he didn't read Greek, and Plato wasn't translated in, from Greek into Latin until the 15th century. And so all my work was sort of tracing these, these subterranean rivers 
by which Platonism went from, you know, ancient Athens to medieval Florence and how that actually happened and who was reading Plato and who was, who was in Latin and so forth. And it was an involved project, but I sort of put my Lewis aside, you know, for a, for a decade or so. And then I started reading him to my kids as my kids got a little bit older, reading the nonfiction, reading the Narnia stories. And as I was writing my dissertation on the history of Platonism and its influence on Dante, and I was reading the Narnia books, started taking notes of these sort of curious overlaps. Then I started reading some of Lewis's scholarly works and discovered that this man who I had admired was, had got to basically all the most interesting and most important conclusions I had made about Dante and the sort of medieval <laughs> world. And I thought, that's something I need to understand. That's something I need to dig into. And in a way, that was the sort of the distant origin of the book was a little bit like the story that Chesterton describes in Orthodoxy of the man who leaves England in order. He's a bold explorer and he gets you know confused and disoriented in a, in a storm and discovers this undiscovered country and plants the flag of England for it. And then the next day explores a little bit and realizes that everyone here speaks English because this is just England where he just rediscovered the, the very island he had left. I think in a way, that was sort of my experience of Lewis, of seeing that as a scholar, he had dug up some of the things which I thought were the most exciting and most interesting things that I had discovered. And there it was all in Lewis, with the important difference that he had sat around in, in the Bodleian Library and read these things in untranslated and sometimes unedited text medieval manuscripts, and he just dug out all these rich, bizarre treasures, and then had made them, in some cases, the basis for some of his stories. And so to my shock and admiration, I discovered that Lewis is a great writer in his apologetics and in his imaginative writings, not despite his day job, but because of it. In the best possible way, and I don't even think he would be mad at me right now if he if he can hear <laughs> us. Um, in the best possible way, he's a plagiarist, right? He's he's, he's a plagiarist. So, uh, I guess we might say a recycler, giving new life to old ideas which have become strange just because of their historical form, but really deserve to be really deserve to be brought back. And so, my argument in this book is that he does this to a surprising extent bringing back these old ideas from all kinds of authors some 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 ones that we you know we know a little bit better than others but some you know in, incredibly strange authors as well but that's what the book is about hmm. so that book again was the medieval mind of cs lewis how great books shaped a great mind and with all the interviews i'm doing at the moment i've always got a book on the go and i have to say that my wife has voted yours her favorite cover of all the books that have been on my bedside table recently uh, with the kind of illuminated decoration uh, around the book that you find in medieval manuscripts i'll take it i think it's a beautiful <laughs> book and in fact my wife said something very similar she said i would buy that book just for the cover <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about that comment, but you know, they did a great job. And I have to say, it, it was kind of, it was an extraordinary experience to get this book and to see the cover. And because when it came back to me, all of a sudden it had gone from just sort of ideas in my brain, which I had put into a Word document, to something which had been developed by a whole team and had become outside of me then. And then as I started reading the book myself, I had this sort of strange sort of distance from it where I was just sort of able to evaluate it for what it was. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel like kind of like clinging attachment to it anymore. I just thought, hmm, some of this stuff is pretty good. 
Yeah. So I think I, that for me is, I think one of the most interesting parts of the, of the book writing process is when you kind of lose control over the book. It's no longer your possession, but it's entered into the world and it's become, you know, the property and the possession and of, a, of a whole team of people. But yeah, I do love the cover. <laughs> it sounds kind of like you've been to the fountain in the, uh, in the mountains in the great divorce. Uh, I, I actually started I actually started reading the physical copy, which you very graciously sent me. Uh, but my son has decided that long naps are for losers. And so this past weekend, I, as I was trying to finish it, I switched over to the audiobook. And when I downloaded it, I was delighted to discover that the audiobook is read by Simon Vance, who is a voice I very much associate with C.S. Lewis because he's done an awful lot of his books on audiobook. Yes, I, I was I was thrilled that the team at IVP got... Uh, uh, you know, convinced Simon Vance to do it. They sent me a request and said, who do you, who would you want to read? And I didn't reply because I thought Simon Vance, obviously, but I mean, what would be the <laughs> point of requesting him? And then all of a sudden they hear him reading the book. Um, yeah, that was brilliant. I mean, in all fairness and sort of full disclosure, I would listen to him read the phone book in alphabetical order from <laughs> Dallas, Texas. Um, but to hear him reading my, my, my own words was also uh, another extraordinary treat. So let's dig into the book itself. You begin by quoting Lewis's friend, Owen Barfield, and we've had an Owen Barfield month here on the show. People want to go back and find out who this guy was. But he said that there was a third Lewis. And so to provide some context for our listeners, who are the first two Lewises and who is this third Lewis that Barfield wanted people to make sure they knew? Yeah, so the first two Lewises are the you know, those Lewises I think we know pretty well, right? It's the... Uh, it's the moral theologian, the apologist, the uh, the writer of mere Christianity, the the man who used modern media to make Christianity seem relevant and desirable um, in a world in which, you know, can Christ? This is one of the questions that haunted Lewis, right? Can Christianity survive? Does it can it make sense in modernity? It's so tangled up with ancient myths. Does it? Can it still mean anything? And moreover, can you also can you also be quote unquote relevant or modern, but also faithful, deeply faithful, without having to reinvent Christianity or to to turn it into some sort of ghostly, shadowy vision of itself that that uh, ancient Christians would hardly own, right? That's one of you know one of those Lewises. The other Lewis, of course, is the is the successful writer of fiction the imaginative writer who creates these worlds, these, what he loves to call these atmospheres in which Christianity is, is there. Everyone feels it there, but it's breathable. It's not doctrinal. It's not a Sunday school lesson. It's not a PowerPoint presentation. It's not a set of correct opinions, but it's a breathable world in which you sort of take one, you know, one drop of Christian Christianity with one sort of curious, uh, strange, you know, changing of the of the factual description of the world, and you invent a new world in which Christianity reincarnates itself, in which, in some sense, the historical world has changed, but the deep truths are still there, and you get your Narnias, or you get your Perilandras, or you get your Malacandras, right? That's another Lewis, and those were the blockbuster uh, Lewises. But there was another really successful Lewis who was adored by students and packed out lecture halls, and this is the this is the academic Lewis. This is the the medievalist, as I jokingly say. This is the 
this is the Lewis, well, not really jokingly, this is the Lewis who reads 15th century, you know, mystical text with pencil in hand for his devotional reading. This is the Lewis who studied dead languages, who doesn't quote Occitan and medieval Italian or Latin or Greek. Oh, sorry, he quotes them. He doesn't translate them. He doesn't translate his medieval his, his medieval languages because he thinks you should know that. Right? This is the <laughs> philologist who wrote essays on semantics, metaphors, and etymologies. Uh, quote, the distinguished Oxford Don and literary critic who packed lecture theaters with his unscripted reflections on English literature. So this is, you know, this is Lewis's day job. You know, to our surprise, you read through his letters and he's counseling people like Sheldon Van Auken. You know what? You should go read medieval literature to help you deal with this kind of grief. Have you read Paradiso? He's recommending friends to read Julian of Norwich and, and Boethius. This academic, Lewis, and I think academics understand this, right? I think part of the reason you become an academic, part of the reason you become a professor is because you don't know how to turn your brain off at 5 p.m. is that what you're sitting what is sitting on your your night table your nightstand right is the same thing that's sitting in your desk in your office right it's the the same type of thing this pervaded lewis's mind and this third lewis which was known so well by his students right and uh, obviously by his his closest friends is just beneath the surface in lewis 1 and lewis 2 hmm. and that sheldon van orkin to whom lewis said read uh read some medieval literature. We're actually going to be going through Sheldon Van Orkin's book, A Severe Mercy, next month. <laughs> Good prolegomenon. Hmm. Now, here's the big question, though. How is the medieval world relevant? Because I've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I know that the medieval period seems mostly about rolling around in mud, testing to see if women are witches by seeing if they weigh the same as a duck. And while the period may have produced illuminated manuscripts, people still call it the Dark Ages. So why does it matter? So Lewis thought that he was on the cutting edge of a trend when he accepted that chair in Cambridge in 1954. And he gave a speech, an inaugural address, um, when he took the chair of what was called medieval and renaissance literature. And he thought this was going to be the beginning of a salutary trend in which we stopped talking about the Dark Ages. You know, for so long, beginning with Gibbons and beginning with Jakob Burckhardt, the 19th century Swiss historian, there's been this radical distinction between the quote-unquote dark ages of the Middle Ages and then the period of the Renaissance, in which people rediscovered ancient thinking and science and so forth. Well, the, the, the problem is that whole sort of distinction between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance has been complicated by scholars decade after decade after decade. And Lewis finally thought that the academy had reached a point where that distinction was going to be erased. And just shortly after that, it would finally make it into the popular culture. And we would stop talking about the Dark Ages. But then Monty Python made their movie <laughs> and set Lewis's good work back another you know, five decades. So first of all, the Renaissance seems a lot more, quote unquote, religious, a lot more theological um, than anyone had thought at the time, even a figure like Newton. If for every one page that he wrote on optics or universal gravitation, he wrote 10 pages on kind of mystical biblical commentary. Even in the age of 17th century Newton, the sort of great age of scientific revolution, or Copernicus or Kepler, the chief desire to study the constitution of the physical world was as a book, they, they like to say, as a sensible book, 
in which God tried to reveal something about himself within the natural world. And I think that's what Lewis loved. He felt that we had been orphaned from our own deep spiritual desires, in part because we had been imprisoned in an enlightenment mindset of the what is meaningful is my interiority, my feelings, my agency, my intellect. But the world out there is just a bunch of inert chunks of matter interacting. And thus, if I see something and I'm moved by it, it's just me bringing my feelings and imposing it on that. Whereas Lewis hungered for an older, a medieval understanding in which in whatever capacity, to a certain extent, the physical world was what you could call iconic, sacramental, he likes to say in his Allegory of Love book, 1936, or symbolic, that in its own way, even the natural world was trying to him, in his very physical interactions, was trying to him a praise of God. That in some sense, these uplifting moments we have in terms of beauty are the natural world in its own way trying to, as Boethius puts it, time imitating eternity. Lewis loved that idea. And he thought that that very idea of a natural world which was saturated with a sense of the divine had a whole series of cultural effects. And it influenced how we thought about human beings not as sort of, as we like to say now, consumers or mere sort of, you know, uh, rational maximizers of our own good, but as these sort of spiritual beings which were trying to incarnate in their own realities these deep goods. And so I, I, I try to put it this just I try to put it this way, just trying to get at these these deep thoughts that for the medievals, the very physical world felt something like a medieval cathedral. Here's how I put it in the book. Standing in a medieval cathedral gives you a kind of x-ray vision of the world. Meaning is everywhere, full and rich. The material world has been gathered to a saturation point. In a cathedral, then, the spiritual world feels like it's leaking in, and our response to it is to want to soar up and through and out. Look up any of the black and white photographs of Salisbury Cathedral, and you'll see what I mean. But if the cathedral were, as I've, I've also put it, if the cathedral were almost like some sort of scientific instrument, you could say like a particle accelerator for the Middle Ages, it was meant to reveal those sort of deep structures of the world. And when the deep structures of the world were revealed, this kind of spiritual longing just beneath the surface, it also brings out the kind of best self in me and my own spiritual longings. So in the, in the pre-modern world, those spiritual longings for the infinite, the sort of things that Lewis describes in Surprised by Joy, didn't feel out of place. You didn't feel like a weirdo because you were haunted by this kind of sacred discontent. As you do, Lewis thought, in the modern world. You remember as he sums it up in Surprised by Joy, right? He had all these kind of strange transports, these longings for, 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 for joy to have it again for this eternity. But it just didn't make sense. And so he spent several decades of his life trying to rationalize himself and to convince himself that those kind of spiritual longings were things that should have been left in the nursery. Infantile, adolescent things that a wise, rational man in the modern world gets over. And so reading his medieval literature for Lewis was kind of therapeutic. To imagine a cosmic imaginary, to imagine a world in which those types of longings were not out of place, but indeed resonant with it such that the external symphony of the world 
elicited and drew out the internal symphony of my moral life. And in your book, you describe Lewis as wanting to be a British Boethius. What did you mean by that? Yes, and this is something I'm indebted to one of your previous hosts, Chris Armstrong. Chris Armstrong saw this as, as well in his book. Um, interesting overlaps. When Lewis gives his lectures on how to do apologetics for a modern world, he likes to refer to his contemporaries as barbarians. <laughs> he, he likes to needle you know, his, his contemporary audiences just a bit. Because in a way, you would think that people who have access to such sophisticated machines, right, as televisions and, well, I guess maybe not quite, but radios and <laughs> airplanes and, uh, and motor cars and trains and steel and all these kinds of things, steel and glass constructions, that you would think that these types of people would be the exact opposite of barbarians. But Lewis said, no. They're barbarians in the sense that they're disconnected from their, class, from their classical heritage and proud of it. Well, what's he thinking of? Well, then you turn to Lewis's scholarly literature. You turn to something like the discarded image where he's describing the world of Boethius and the barbarians. And the, as he says, the huge beer-drinking thanes, boasting thanes, who had cut themselves off from their classical heritage and were proud of it. In the world, 6th century world of Boethius, the new rulers of Theodoric and friends weren't exactly sure what the good of translating Greek philosophy and Greek literature into Latin would be. And so those two worlds are strikingly similar in terms of the distance. Secondly, Lewis admired Boethius because Boethius did something which he said that every modern apologist has to do, that is, translate everything into the vernacular. He calls Boethius at one point the divine popularizer. Scholars have called Boethius the last of the Romans and the first of the medievals. Because for the next, you know, almost 1,000 years, only a handful of scholars in the Middle Ages are going to have access to Greek. So Boethius was desperately trying to get as much of this into Latin, and his life was cut tragically short. But his, his consolation of philosophy is a way for him to write, you know, a 87-page thesis in which he focused not so much on the differences between all of the between all the classical authors but what they had in common he didn't have the luxury in a way to parse out the infinitely subtle differences between i don't know sort of stoics and and platonists and aristotelians and and all these kinds of things but needed to emphasize what they all had in common when you read lewis you find lewis doing something almost identical that he talks about, the term I came up with is the long Middle Ages. He talks about what Gilgamesh and Jane Austen have in common, right? Someone <laughs> writing in 2000 BC in 1800, early 1800s, right? This expanse of 4,000 years that he thought we need to emphasize in a, in a culture which is rapidly mechanizing, which is increasingly having sort of you know, technological mediation come between me and my interactions with the natural, in which my the, how I think about the world has changed, and so my ethics and my psychology are also changing. We don't have the luxury to talk about what's the difference between Samuel Johnson and the Egyptian pharaohs, but we've got to think about the common heritage. And so he's got a hilarious moment when she's talking about the mere idea of God. And he says, basically what I'm trying to get at is what St. Paul and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and St. Jerome and Bishop Hooker from the 17th century, all of them would have said together. 
In other words, he sort of spans this 2000 year period. In other words, like Boethius, who doesn't, who's no longer working in the conditions to make the fine academic distinctions. And like Boethius, translating all of this stuff into the vernacular and making, making it felt and understood in an ordinary language, he's dwelling in a land of barbarism with limited time. And thus his project has to be mere, merely presenting what is attractive and beautiful and meaningful about the, the medieval world. In that sense, he's the British Boethius. So great. Uh, now, you cover an awful lot of stuff in your book. So I had to make a decision as I was reading it, what I wanted to talk about. And it really, the two subjects that really jumped out at me were mysticism and Dante. So let's talk about mysticism first. Could really do with the definition, because I heard people talk about mystics and mysticism for a long time before I ever heard anybody actually give me a definition. Uh, and I know this is a subject that you studied a lot. So what does it mean to be a mystic? And was Lewis one of them? To do this, I have to go, I have to read you a short passage from another one of my books, An Introduction to Christian Mysticism. And here's how I say it. Mysticism is founded on the belief that every soul is made with an infinite desire that only an infinite bliss can satisfy. Mysticism believes that this infinite fountain for which our souls thirst is God, but God cannot be contained within the creation he made nor can he be comprehended fully within human language and rationality by which we represent the creation in our minds. Thus, mysticism is an ascent through rationality toward the edge of language, and when we have arrived at the periphery of language, we walk over the edge and fall into the darkness of unknowing, as Dionysus calls it, which is not ignorance, but a way of knowing that is higher and deeper than our customary rational consciousness. That's a mystic. And I think in that sense, Lewis is a funny mystic. Maybe you could call <laughs> him an aspiring mystic. You could call him someone who's, who read enough medieval literature and he knows his Dionysus well. The, the, the passage that I quoted of Dionysus, the Areopagite, he knows this. He lectures on it to his students. It's quoted in discarded image. He analyzes it. Um, Dionysus is also just beneath the surface in miracles and some of his apologetic mm -hmm. works. Um, so he knows it really quite well. But on the other hand, one of the sort of paradoxes that I try to deal with in the book is that he's frequently putting distance between himself and this. I think it's because his sort of, you know, noble pastoral responsibility. Look, we all know how, uh, how <laughs> irritating it is for those people who, um, say, want to skip religion to get to the spiritual. <laughs> and by doing so, as I like to jokingly put it, right, drive their Toyota Priuses to their <laughs> yoga appointments and cut people off and flip them off in the way, right? In order to go find the deep part of themselves. That irritates us because we recognize that it's a kind of discontinuity, that we feel that it, you can't just sort of skip to the good stuff, that if you want intimacy in a relationship, you just have to spend a lot of time together talking about sometimes trivial things. But in the course of those sort of time spent, depth emerges. And I think Lewis wanted to protect his readers and his, his friends and his students from this kind of false sense of depth that you could just jump to being a mystic. You could just be spiritual without being religious. 
And Lewis is, you know, very, as Walter Hooper kind of revealed this whole side of him, right? Lewis was very devout in the most ordinary little ways, like going to daily chapel services and taking things literally in, in, uh, you know, in the New Testament, like donating to widows and orphans, because that's what St. Paul says in Timothy, you need to do. And so in some little small ways, Lewis takes these daily Monday morning responsibilities extremely seriously. But I think he has this, uh, I guess we could call it Sunday evening aspiration <laughs> of having these these moments in which, as I said, you walk to the periphery of 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 language and run out of the things to say about God, and then dive in, dive into this this kind of moment in which the infinite desire of my own heart wants to plunge itself into the infinite desire of God's love, and my chief experience is how short my language comes in trying to describe anything accurately. It's sort of freeing God um, of the prison that we create for him of our very own language. It's the ability to recognize that even when I say things like God exists, I'm speaking analogously. Even when I say that God is good, I'm using a word that I barely understand what it means with respect to his being. And so I think the, the mystic believes that um, the medieval mystic believes that there's a faculty deeper than rationality. Boethius calls it intelligentsia. What we might call, and, oh, and this is all over surprised by joy, right? These, these sort of rapture moments that Lois has, that when he sees the world is saturated by joy and he just wants to drink it in, to cling to it, to hold it, but he's run out of language, are like um, foretaste, um, of hinting at a type of mystical union, which the Christian tradition in the Middle Ages calls, for lack of a better term, mysticism. So I think that was that was the vision that was driving Lewis. That's what he hunkered for. But he also had this very, I think I want to call it, Protestant sensibility, this smart Protestant sensibility that you have to spend most of your life in faithful, evangelical, daily acts of charitable goodness with what George Herbert calls exercising the quick-eyed faculty of love. Who needs me now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who is naked and needs to be clothed? Who is hungry and needs to be fed? But that type of thing, which, which if you start to think of yourself as sort of you know, profoundly deep and spiritual, you might <laughs> skip over all of those kinds of daily, quote-unquote, boring spiritual faculties and that's, I think, Lewis was really trying to do something beautiful. He was trying, in some sense, to bring those spiritual virtues which flourished in the medieval period and those spiritual virtues which you know flourished post-Reformation in his mind and bring that sort of sense of daily humble, providential devotion with something which was otherworldly and super sensual and trying to, to live it out in this kind of communion of the dead in which different Christians from different ages are in this kind of great parliament and get to represent these different facets of Christianity. Hmm. Now he said that the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow's a Monday morning. And you talked a little bit about the cross and the Monday morning, but in his works, you get glimpses of crowns. Everything that you just said there, including the quotation from your book, it was just screaming till we have faces to me, particularly with that final vision 
But also this season, we read The Four Loves, and you mentioned this in, in your book. At the end of that book, when he's speaking about charity, we ever so briefly get teased with some kind of mysticism uh, when he's talking about charity and love of God. What do you make uh, of, of, those, of those moments, and particularly that one from The Four Loves? Yeah, you, you, you wish you could be in his original audience and raise your hand and say, excuse me, <laughs> Professor Lewis, could you talk to Timmy more about that? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure a lot of your, under, a lot of your, your listeners have had the, my undergraduate experience in which you just loved some professor and you thought that he possessed some type of wisdom like deep in his bones, right? Deep in her bones. And you just wanted to get them to talk about it. And so you make up some question, right? And go to their office and under the pretext of some, you know, may I ask you a question about the assignment? Just want to get them to talk. You wish you could get Lewis to do that. And I think you're right. I think if you, you go through with highlighter in hand, you can find these wonderful snatches in, you know, letters to Malcolm talks about this light on the other side of the sun, or you find a couple of these moments in screw tape letters right? The, the prayer of silence. And you, you wish that he would expound it and he would talk about it more. Um, and for, as we said, for pastoral reasons, he's very reticent. He's very shy about it. Well, of course, he, he, he seems he just very, very shy about all that kind of interiority. You remember in The Weight of Glory, he apologizes for talking about the inner ache, the inner longing which you will know shows up again in the blue room with Merlin, that when Venus comes down and inspires a kind of regular sort of like boiling of the blood in the folks down in the kitchen, inspires this kind of infinite inner ache in Merlin, this, this heart yearning for a deep love. So it's there too, it's there everywhere. But maybe, you know, maybe the answer is that Lewis just thought that this is one of those things where we could notice it we could pay attention to it. We could acknowledge that it's there, the inner ache. But as for its full satisfaction, we're going to have to practice the virtue of hope. We're going to have to wait. And then it will come in the fullness. And this is, this is what I call at the very end of my book, nostalgia for the future. In which one of Lewis's, I think, interesting answers about the relevance of the Middle Ages is that it's true on a deep level, even if it's not true on the most factual and literal level. But if it hasn't been true in the past, it will be true in the future. Or at least it's, you know, this kind of deep psychological language, which is just hinting and gesturing at a reality which we only partly understand. So I think that's another reason that that Lewis is so shy and so reticent about talking about these desires, is that he might just think, look, I'm afraid to say, friends, that you can cultivate these longings and you can cultivate this, this wound, as Augustine might call it, right? This spiritual restlessness, this restless heart. And that's good in a way in this context. But if you believe you've got to the point of fully slaking that thirst, you've probably made a mistake because you're trying to turn Christianity into a reality in this world, whereas alas, Christians have to practice the virtue of hope. I think that might also involve why, uh, might also be involved why Lewis doesn't give us. I want fifteen pages on what he gives four sentences to at the at the end of Four Loves. But that might also be another reason why we can uh, go why we go track down Lewis's sources 
people sometimes, you know, ask me why, well, why should we even bother with what Lewis has read? And my answer is, look, everyone's interested in who Lewis was hanging out with in the Eagle and the Child, right? You love Lewis? Well, you want to know who the Inklings were. You like, you're curious in Charles Williams. You're curious in Owen Barfield. You're curious in Tolkien. And then some of these other figures as well. Well, this is Lewis's burden baby circle extended beyond chronological boundaries. So you want to know more about Lewis's um, mystical impulses? Go read Dionysius the Pseudo-Areopagite, the 6th century Byzantine theologian that Lewis knew cold. And you'll begin to get some sort of sense of um, those secret smoldering desires in Lewis's heart that he thought might have been just too private to drag out in front of public audiences. Mm. Maybe Joy knew something about it. Mm. Yeah, he definitely liked hanging out with interesting people, whether they were living or dead. Yes, and I like one. <laughs> and one of the people that he hung out with was Dante Alighieri. And actually, recently, yes. my co-host and I we were brainstorming ideas for next season to have. Uh, what what series what months special specialized months we might have and uh one that is really popular is uh, a lewis's bookshelf series where we talk about the books we shaped him and dante is definitely one of those people and i know you've got another book about dante um but what i would really like for you for you to do is just to explain just briefly who he was and just so people can see the value in this in your book you connect one of the scenes from the divine comedy to both the great divorce and till we have faces. So would you mind would you mind doing that for us? Lewis loved Dante. Um, he says that he thinks he's probably the greatest poet that he ever read. And you have to remember that poetry for Lewis is the highest category of knowledge. Thus, Dante's really up there. Um, Dante Alighieri was a Florentine born in the 1260s. Uh, died in 1321, so we've just come across an important anniversary of his death um, in which lots of people were celebrating. It was a good year, good time to read Dante. <laughs> he was a minor lyric poet in his 20s, and he wrote these kind of strange courtly love poems to which Lewis had devoted the, his first scholarly book, as your listeners will know, The Allegory of Love. What Michael Ward thought that Lewis wanted to do for medieval astrology, right? This weird stuff that if you described it to your listeners, uh, that everyone would think that has zero relevance whatsoever. Mm. And thus, Lewis recaptures it, recycles it, refigures it, and, and allows for these enduring spiritual values to show up through his imaginative literature. Well, Lewis also was doing that for and attempting to do that for in the allegory of love for these weird medieval courtly you know courtly love poems but originally that's what dante did and that's probably what dante would have continued to do he would have just written these sonnets and these canzoni and so forth if the greatest disaster of his life hadn't occurred to him in which he was exiled from florence while he was traveling as a diplomat to rome he received news on the road that if he returns to Florence, he, he will be killed he'll be uh, um, executed and thus he spends the rest of his life in exile. At first for Dante, this inspires a kind of party affiliation rage that he joins the opposite party just because he hates the bad party so much. And he invests all of his energy in this political party to try to return to Florence for a couple of years. But then seemingly has a moment in which he realizes that that's not going to solve the deep problems. The deep problems are beyond 
the surface divisiveness between the parties, but actually run down through the center of the human heart. And in a way returns to the poetry of his youth with the political sensibility of his 30s and thus spends his 40s writing the comedy. The comedy, a poem about a vision of going down into hell and seeing sinners spaced out according to their various sins. And then climbing up this big mountain, which Thomas Merton called the seven-story mountain, which is where we would place Antarctica, and achieving human virtue, and then floating up into space and doing medieval sci-fi <laughs> with accompanied by Beatrice, thus creating this world encyclopedic encompassing poem. The cool thing that for Dante, though, is this external wild journey, first down to the center of the earth, and then up and out is an external way at getting at interior realities. So the descent to the center of the earth is also the descent to the center of the human heart, where you have to encounter what is there, that molding, mildewing, you know, stinking stuff, and dig it out and own it and acknowledge it, um, and then begin to seek out this perfection of, I suppose, what we would call sanctification, of a kind of deep cleansing, uh, that's that's Dante's story in general. And yeah, you're right. It does show up in Lewis. And I think the coolest, my favorite part is the unveiling scene at the end of Till We Have Faces. Because, and I think in a, I think in a world of, uh, of social media in which we control our images and post images of ourselves and have so much sort of capacity to wear veils, Right? This is the sort of self I'd like to seem like um, and secretly fear that people will discover the real me. The mm -hmm. end of Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, is hauntingly powerful of the figure of Orwell having that veil ripped off. And not just that, but just being sort of unclothed and standing in sort of spiritual nakedness, spiritual nudity, and from a vast audience of people and being unable to hide my inner self. Well, that's kind of a brilliant moment of exactly what happens when Dante reaches the top of Mount Purgatory and he sees Beatrice there and Beatrice makes him confess, do what I call a deep confession. And thus there's also a kind of moment of unveiling on Dante. And so I think, I, I think this is haunting Lewis's imagination. I think Lewis knew Dante so well that he couldn't write without accidentally quoting him or borrowing <laughs> from him or what I'm jokingly call plagiarizing Dante in the best possible ways. Yeah, I went and looked up that canto. It's canto 30. And my eyes fell on these lines. My lowered eyes caught sight of the clear stream. Do we have faces, anyone? But also, but when I saw myself reflected there, such shame weighed on my brow, my eyes drew back. That's Eustace Scrub when he's realized that he's become a dragon. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it, it's everywhere. <laughs> I need to put that into the addendum of the second edition if we can get there, <laughs> uh, David. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's absolutely everywhere. And I mean, I think in particular, Dante is this figure who's shockingly psychologically in tune. Mm. And with what it feels like to feel shame, to feel elation, to feel brotherhood. And I like to call Dante the poet of the nerves and of the pulses in which you take head ideas and get them into the heart and get them into the heartbeat. And in some ways, and this is, this is exactly why Lewis admired Dante so much. As he says, the higher you get, the closer to God you get, 
the more concrete, the more everyday, the more weighty Dante's poetry becomes. So that as you, you would think that as you would sort of, you know, ascend to the heights of the universe, your poetry would get more ethereal and more abstract. Maybe it would for a modern poet. But for Dante, it gets closer and closer to the gritty, to the felt, to the pulses, to the, um, to the nerves. And I think that's why Lewis admired him so much. That might also be related to this idea we were talking about earlier of the vernacularization of theology. Right? Tell me why this matters. You can put four correct dogmas in my brain. But if you don't make me feel it, you might not have done a good job teaching me. That's what the medievals taught Lewis about how to write. And he did the same thing by comparing reason and imagination, the organ of truth and the organ of meaning. Exactly, exactly. Or in his common parlance, the looking along the beam and looking at the beam. And that in some sense, every... And I think, you know, those, those who have taught know this and those who have been taught by really good teachers know that a good a good teacher leaves his audience with i would say analytical truths right you know six concrete things that you can actually say but then the felt need of looking through those facts and feeling those facts and asking the question so what why does this matter what does it feel like and that i think obviously is that's why we love lewis isn't it and that's why Lewis loved Dante. <laughs> and Lewis thought that the Middle Ages was the sort of great tutor for how to write, even in modernity, maybe especially for modernity. The world which has become all head and has a shriveled chest, the Middle Ages could teach us how to expand the torso again and to love the things that we say we believe. Hmm. Well, we began this interview by talking about the third Lewis, the medievalist. And we've mentioned the other two, but for my last question, if you had to sum up just in a few sentences, what do you think that that Lewis, the medievalist, what did he contribute to the other two Lewises, the uh, children's novelist, the fiction writer, and the Christian apologetics theology writer? The third Lewis gave to the other Lewises, one, an ethical sensibility that all of our knowledge needs to be translated into heart knowledge for it to actually be real. That there's an aspect of the chivalric. That is, when Lewis writes about chivalry, he says the genius of that system was that it brought together two things which almost like the same uh, sides of a magnet ordinarily repel each other, right? That is, you have to be courageous and you have to be meek and gentle, but simultaneously. And that's the genius, genius of, of, of chivalry. And in general, I think you could say that for Lewis, that's also the genius of the Middle Ages, that it tries, it's complicated. It tries to bring these things together, which in the modernity we repel. We have, um, our morality is such an affair of the head and such an affair of sort of like public goods and the management of public groups and uh, decreasing certain types of statistics and increasing curves in other places, right? It's, it's so disembodied, it's so mathematized that the ordinary love for the person next to me, the ordinary embodied impulse to invade, if I may, love for daily creation is something that the Middle Ages and the way they wrote and the way they thought could teach modernity, according to Lewis. And two, the Middle Ages gave, or that third Lewis as you're putting it, that third Lewis gave to Lewis I and Lewis II, 
a haunted Lewis in the best way, a Christ haunted Lewis, a God haunted Lewis, I guess maybe even better, an eternity haunted Lewis, who believes that the, this world is beautiful and believes that our daily activities and our friendships are all beautiful. And yet all of them are just slightly, ever so slightly dissatisfying. And the Middle Ages gave Lewis the capacity to touch that, to own it, the inner wound, and write about it, and expose it, and talk about this ache, this hunger for eternity, that even when my life is great, even when my life is beautiful, there's 7% discontent, <laughs> even when things are perfect. And that is a good thing, because that is being eternity haunted. That's a gift from the Middle Ages as well. Or in, as I like how you put it, what the third Lewis gave Lewis one and Lewis two. Dr. Baxter, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hear the call for final drinks. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of your book? Jason M. Baxter, jasonmbaxter.com is my website. Um, IVP has the book. Amazon, of course, has the book. But I am also uh, offering uh, to, to ship signed copies to people who want to go vinyl or want to shop indie. <laughs> And uh, would like something just a little bit more tangible, a little bit more tangible relationship with the author. So uh, people can track down that on jasonandbaxter.com as well as find some of my other writings, my popular writings, if, if they would be inclined to do so. Wonderful. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks again to Dr. Baxter for coming on the show. Thank you to all of you for listening, for our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay. Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And join us next time, when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.